The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning are authors and attorney Nikki D. Pope uh, and author Courtney B. Lance, who's also a chef, food, and lifestyle blogger. Uh, their new book is Innocent and Exonerated. In 2014, a record-breaking 119 exonerations occurred in the United States. And if you were given a prison sentence of 25 to life for a crime you didn't commit, how would you spend your time? And what, what would give you hope that you would someday be exonerated? These are the questions that authors Nikki Pope and Courtney Lance asked victims of wrongful convictions. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, uh, ladies. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, my first question, I guess, is, well, who are the victims, and why did you two decide to tell their stories? Why do we need to hear their stories? Uh, well, Nikki? Um, um, so I'm on the board of one of the Innocence Projects. There's something like 65 Innocence Projects in the country, um, starting with the one based in New York. And there's one here in, in California where I live, and I'm on that advisory board. And then the, in the course of my work on that board, I met men and women who had been wrongfully convicted and exonerated. And um, a lot of them have... Um, most of them, in fact, have um, no means of support once they get out of prison because, you know, they've been in for quite a long time. So um, they spend a lot of time going around the state talking about what happened to them and encouraging people to change the system. And um, uh, we um, at the Innocence Project decided to create a public speaking program for them to hone their public speaking skills. And while we were doing that, I heard them telling stories about being in prison. And some of them actually centered around food, oddly enough. And it was, it was amazing some of the things that they were able to cook in prison. And because Courtney is a chef, I thought maybe we could do a prison food cookbook, so I called her. And that was the beginning of this. And that, that was the yeah. beginning of this project. It was yeah. going to be the prison food cookbook. cookbook. Okay, but then it took a shift, obviously, because it didn't end up as a prison food cookbook. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah, because I'm looking, you know, when I, I knew I was going to have you guys on the show, I thought chef, food, and lifestyle blogger, this is Courtney uh, Lance, and uh, what does food have to do with this? Well, anyway, okay, so let's give... Uh, uh, Courtney, a chance. So you were brought in as the person who was going to help put to, what together a cookbook for the. Well, the yeah, I think yeah. there was a the opportunity to test some of the recipes and figure out how we could, you know, make them interesting for our reading uh, public. Um, but then we realized that, you know, maybe 
prison food is not the most appealing <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> affair that would sell a lot of books and, and help these exonerees. Uh, the other catalyst was that I came uh, into California and we met some of them and we started to have conversations with them. And, you know, their stories uh, moved into, or I asked questions, Nikki asked questions about, like, how did you get through this? Um, and what we realized is that uh, there's more to this story than food, um, that it takes quite a bit of strength and tenacity um, and, uh, you know, human spirit uh, to get through the number of years that some of these men and women have spent in prison. And we so, thought that was, that was it. You know, so that there were a it. lot of stories and a lot of issues. Right. Obviously, that, and uh, so hence the birth of the book, Pruno, Raman, and a side of hope, stories of surviving yes. wrongful conviction. Okay, so yes. now we have the title of the book. Uh, but this is a collection of stories, is uh, what, 10 different stories about 10 different victims, but not just the victims, but also their families, because wrongful conviction involves not just the person themselves, but the entire family. And so uh, it, it's real. I important for us to address this issue, I guess, in our society as these people are uh, exonerated. And some of them, I guess, have been in prison for how long? You say 25 years, uh, longer than that, less than that? So um, the, the people that we talked to, I think yeah. the longest was a little over 20 years, um, almost 20 years and five months was the longest. But there have been people exonerated um, much more than that, 35, 40 years even. And, you know, in, in, in their cases, when you, when you talk about someone getting out of prison after that long of a time, um, we think about one of the guys who went in in 1991, and he came out in 2011. And the world has changed so much in that 20-year time span, if you think about it, when he went in, there were no, you know, small cell phones and iPads and self-driving cars and <laughs> kind of crazy stuff that we take for granted because we've just evolved through it. And he gets out, and basically the, um, the California uh, prison system gave him $25 and a paper bag with the clothes that he had on when he arrived in prison 20 years earlier, which, of course, didn't fit, and said, you know, see ya, have a good time. Well, what I found shocking, uh, what I found really shocking was the fact that I'm a social worker. I had no idea that when, if you are exon exonerated like this individual that you're talking about, that when you come out, you don't get any support services from the state or the federal government, I guess maybe in some states, but very few. Whereas if you serve your time and then you get out of prison, then you're able to access these these social services or legal services. So... I, I, there's such a disconnect. I mean, and mm -hmm. these are the people that you're talking about, obviously. Um, tell us specifically the story. Well, m maybe this individual is a good one. I mean, what were his, do they have any access to any of the information that you just mentioned, um, Nikki, in prison? I mean, internet, any of the new kinds of technologies, are they totally shielded from that or... Um, not totally, but um, most prisons don't allow Internet access, so they can do sort of a simulation. There's actually a program here in California at San Quentin um, called The Last Mile, where they are training inmates to do coding, computer coding. 
and but they can't get onto the internet, so they have to simulate what the internet is like. Um, and so, so they they really don't um, have a lot of access to to what we have out here. I mean, this particular individual, when when he got out. Um, we, uh, the, the Innocence Project, the Northern California Innocence Project, was able to get some donations of technology for him. So we had um, a, a student, because the, the project is attached to um, Santa Clara Law School, we had a student help him figure out how to work a, uh, an iPhone and an iPad and set up a Facebook account and all the rest of that because they have none of they, he had none of that. He had no idea where that stuff was. So the purpose of the book is what, obviously to raise awareness about the problem or the issue, but then what? It seems to me there's obviously there's more that you that you are going to do from uh, publishing this book and having people be aware. Um, so what are some of the other, I guess, what are some of the other, Courtney, what are some of the issues? Well, we have uh, lots of dreams, but, you know, first and foremost, it is about uh, uh, making sure that these men and women who have been found innocent or at least exonerated do have some kind of support systems when they uh, are released uh, so that they can reenter into the world. It is rather scary. And um, not only that, but after you've been in jail for a long time, you don't have, um, you don't have the benefit of having any work experience. You don't have a resume. You don't have any of these things that that most employers are looking for uh, in terms of employing, uh, you know, even innocent people. Um, and so uh, that's part of it. Um, the other part is to raise awareness uh, about the, our, injust, our justice system and um, the privatization of the prisons. Um, there are just a number of issues that need to be considered and need to, we need to have conversations about um, so that these men and women are not incarcerated for things that they didn't do. What about the stigma? And, I'm thinking about there has to be, even though they are found innocent and they are exonerated legally, but what about socially? I mean, when they, they've come out of prison and you're talking about getting a job or even being trained for jobs, it would seem to me there would still be this stigma attack. They were in prison, and that that would affect the way employers view them or hire them. Yeah, you're right. There is a stigma, and it's also a, a, the part of the, the one of the bigger issues is employers don't want to employ people because of their uh, current employees and how they will react to knowing that there is someone who is in prison. And you know, there's sort of a you know, uh, a prison cloud or like you must be a criminal or you must, you know, um, be dangerous or any of those things, even though they have been found uh, not guilty or found innocent. So, so yeah, there is a stigma. And, what and about the families? That, now, that would be the public or maybe the employees, uh, people that they, uh, when they, uh, the, well, I call them victims and they are victims uh, mm -hmm. when they come out that they have to face. What about families? Are there family? Because you talk about families in your book too. Any families who uh, don't accept them or their loved ones, I'm putting that in quote, after they get out of prison? Um, and the stigma is also, you can see, you know, in the, in the family uh, dynamics. That, that I, does happen. Um, yeah. 
there um in one of the stories in our book um um it the the whole situation split up a family where on one side you have the kids who believe the mom was innocent and the other side the kids believe the mom is guilty it also happens with um, the families of the victim of the crime that occurred, where um, even though a person has been exonerated, um, even with DNA evidence in some cases, the the victim's family still won't believe it. They don't believe that the person is innocent. Um, mm-hmm. You have prosecutors who refuse to accept the fact that the person has been exonerated and, and, will, mm-hmm. and have gone on the record saying, well, you know, the court system may have exonerated this person but I know they did it. it and so it's very it becomes much more difficult for an exonerated person to to get out of get from behind the stigma of of having been in prison and having committed a crime when you have people going on the record in the press saying things like I know they did it even though the court system screwed up what about counseling for the victims? I mean, there are just so many issues here as I'm talking to both of you. It's like, the, how, how do they feel? I mean, are, you know, once they get out, and even though they are exonerated, is anger, frustration, <laughs> rage. Uh, let's talk about some of those emotions that I assume the victims in your stories uh, suffered from. Um, you know, it's really astonishing to me that they're not furious. I mean, Courtney and I talked about this a lot. Where we're furious on their behalf. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, go to <laughs> go to the courthouse and shake some people by the shoulders. But they're not. They're not pissed off. They're. Um, I. One guy asked me. Said, you know, why aren't you pissed off? You spent a lot of time. You spent your young man years in prison. Why aren't you angry? And he said, I, when I was in prison, I took all that anger and frustration and I focused it on getting out. And now that I'm out, I'm not going to let them have any more of my life by being angry with them. I'm just, I'm moving on. And so they, there's this, well, Courtney can talk about the one guy, the sort of sense of peace that you seem to... It's, yeah, it's it's, uh, it, it really is rather <laughs> phenomenal. Um, uh, we, I walked away from, with some of the, uh, from some of those stories with uh, a sense of gratitude um, about because it, it gave them this time to actually, I guess, think about their lives and what they really wanted to do when they got out and and it was just really <laughs> quite an amazing thing. Um, there's one uh, storyteller that uh, mentioned that they were angry for a period of time, but just like Nikki said, worked through that and got over it rather quickly and is, um, you know, grateful to be out and actually even grateful for, the, for what things that they learned in prison. Um, so it's really – they're – Pretty amazing people. Yeah, I think one of the one of the more difficult things to deal with um, for for many of the people who, particularly if they spend a a significant amount of time in prison, um, is the what goes on outside with their families. Their families have to move on, and so you have you know children who are babies, and now they're adults. Um, people die. Um, a, a couple of our exonerees, their their moms died. Um, one one of the storytellers, when she got out, there was only one member of her family still alive, and so 
when they get out, not only is there the stigma of having been in prison and then having to deal with lack of social services and reintegrating into society, but the your your sort of personal network, your support system of family isn't there um, in a lot of cases. Me, yeah, and as uh, it seems to me, all it sounds similar to returning veterans, some of the same things, some of the, yeah. you know, families have changed, they've evolved, and they've evolved without you, without the person who's in prison. Uh, and also, what about sp uh, spouses or partners? They've moved on to, they may have other partners, uh, maybe the person knows about them, maybe they d don't, but it would seem to me that brings up all kinds of, those kinds of issues, too. Yeah, it, it does. And one of the things that um, when you mentioned veterans that we found is um, exonerees suffer post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, you've been in prison, yeah. you've been in, you're innocent, and you've been in, like, if you're in San Quentin, that's a maximum security prison. You're in with some bad people who did some bad stuff, yeah. and, um, and bad things happen to you, and when you get out, you have to deal with that. And one of, uh, one of the, the storytellers, um, the, the family member who told the story um, from the family member's perspective is a daughter, um, and she talks about how different her father is now that he's out. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, that's what I thought, you know, as, as you were talking, it's that PTSD, that, that, I mean, they need counseling and you're saying that they're not getting these services. They need therapy. The family needs counseling. Uh, I mean, it seems to me there's, 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 they would be just so needy. I mean, you mentioned the word grateful, but it would seem to me that they would be so needy and, um, and the services just aren't there or just aren't available. What are some of the biggest contributions um, to uh, this incarcerating people innocently. Why do we do that? How, why, how does the system fail them, or how do we fail them? Well, well Courtney, go ahead. You can answer. Yeah. Well, Courtney, yeah. Oh, um, I, uh, part of the problem is just um, a privatized or elected uh, justice or, or officials, you know, that um, it, it's very difficult, I guess, to divorce yourself from how you keep your job and how you, you know, defend or prosecute um, a, a person. Um, there's also but, a lot of misidentification um, and uh, forcing people to or make comments that are not necessarily true. So you're talking um, about think, perjury or falsely accusing people, those kinds of things? or it, like, Well, what? it sort of gets mixed in because you have yeah. mistaken witness identification, which is probably um, uh, mistaken identification, which is the, probably the, the, the largest contributor to wrongful convictions. But that includes um, people who innocently make a mistake, who they, they – they saw someone and they identify the person that they saw or that they thought they saw and they were wrong. Um, but you also have people who just make stuff up, you know, and they, mm -hmm. they intentionally mistakenly identify someone. Um, and then you have uh, in one of our cases where the procedures for witness identification weren't followed properly. And so you have witnesses influencing, uh, eyewitnesses influencing other eyewitnesses to make the same wrong choice. 
So you have, um, in, 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 in this particular case, six teenagers, one of whom recognized someone, not because they were associated with the, with the crime that occurred, but because she knew him and she thought he was cute. And that, that was the impetus for the other five saying, oh, yeah, that's the guy. And just on the basis of that, you have a man who ended up spending 18 years in prison. And That's really it, scary stuff. It, yeah. It's very, mm-hmm. very scary. Uh, one of the things that the Innocence Projects do is train um, and work with local law enforcement on, on best practices for eyewitness identification. And a lot of um, jurisdictions and police precincts around the country are starting to adopt those practices. So that's when you asked before about what what we want the book to accomplish. I think one of the biggest things that this book can accomplish, um, aside from raising awareness, the public's awareness about the problem, is to encourage the public to make their, make our law enforcement and our justice system work the way it's supposed to work and demand best practices be implemented wherever they can and demand that the, the system change. In your experience, and you're a lawyer, uh, what about incompetent uh, attorneys? Does that come into play? Mm It, it, it does, and it comes into play on both sides. I mean, you know, on on the one side, we 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 really like to talk about, um, you know, how prosecutors. Um, uh, engage in misconduct, and there is some of that. Um, There are a lot of really good prosecutors out there, but there are some out there that just don't play by the rules. Um, One of the stories in our book is about a a woman who, um, who, I mean, the prosecutor uh, withheld information that would have exonerated her. She wouldn't have even gone to jail in the first place, and he held on to it for almost 17 years. And it's one of the few cases where a prosecutor was actually brought before the State Bar Association, but all he got was a reprimand. And he didn't. He served no time. He wasn't disbarred. He just got a reprimand and told, you know, don't do that again. Um, You have countless cases where that happens. But on the other side, you also have ineffective assistance of counsel where, you know, people don't believe when you tell these stories about defense attorneys who, even in death penalty cases, cases defense attorneys who are um, drunk in court or who fall asleep at the, at the table and nobody says anything. <laughs> and this is, well, you when know, you say, Nikki, nobody says anything, what about the judge? Where is he or she in this case? Sitting, I mean, sitting you, on the yeah. bench. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting on the bench. Yeah. And when, when I say this, people look at me like I've lost my mind. It's preposterous. How can that happen? Yeah. But I've is, seen it happen. Is this, and I have to ask this question, is this a class thing? Do we allow, I mean, what about people who have a lot of money and a lot of support and can hire big fancy attorneys, defense attorneys who don't fall asleep at the you know, on the table who aren't drunk the night before, are they wrongfully incarcerated? Does that happen often? Not often because um, you're talking about people who can afford the best possible um, uh, defense. They can afford to have teams of really, really good lawyers. 
um, uh, defend them and so that they don't get to that point. But it, it does happen. I mean, you have um, – there are a couple of really famous cases. You have Senator Ted Stevens, who was found guilty, and then after the fact, it turns out that the um, that the the U.S. attorneys from the Justice Department, no less, were coercing witnesses. And all of that uh, – uh, all of the the evidence that went into his um, him being prosecuted turned out to not be quite as strong as it as as they thought, and you have other cases where um, there are a couple of cases in California. I mean, we had a few years back the um, um, the Justice Department was was conducting a lot of investigations about. Um, uh, misdeeds i guess you could yeah. describe them that way within the within the um tech world and there were um a couple of high profile executives who were um found guilty and one in particular who i know um um and it, it, the it, as it turns out the um the prosecution the the prosecutors were um how do I put this? They were making <laughs> witnesses making witnesses feel that they had to say something that uh. the prosecutors would like. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, uh, because we as the public don't always we don't have uh, we're not privy to that, which is interesting. You know, I I sometimes think of you know well, the guys on Wall Street and uh, you know maybe I shouldn't say this and you know they they're getting what they deserve kind of thing. But uh, you've kind of given us another. A look at it, I guess, a different perspective. Uh, well, it also not, happens. They, it happens yeah. on the the other way too. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people who have lots of wonderful defense money, money to spend on defense um, attorneys that are guilty of the crimes and don't go to jail. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so you know, money well, kind of talks. Well, yeah. there's there's one there's one case that um, really interested me. Um, just from an innocence perspective, which was the case of John Thompson, who was in Louisiana, and he was on death row. And there were two attorneys in Philadelphia um, at a, a big law firm who decided they were going to take a death penalty case to see if it made a difference to have someone who was a really, you know, crack attorney take on a case, uh, on a death case. And when they started, they said they 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 figured he was guilty just like everybody else did and as they started investigating the case they realized he wasn't guilty and about two weeks before he was going to be executed they found um, evidence that that proved him innocent and the evidence had been withheld by the prosecutor in that case out of uh, New Orleans and it was a crazy case um, the um, John ended up getting an award from the state of $14 million. He spent 14 years on death row and an additional four years not on death row. And the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court where um, Justice Thomas wrote probably the most heartbreaking opinion I have ever read in my life, taking the $14 million back and basically saying, you know, for all intents and purposes, prosecutors are immune. From prosecution, uh, and that's you know, where we are today. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm. You know, as I'm listening to, you, it's 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 scary. I mean, I guess what you're saying, or are you saying, could this happen to any one of us? I mean, yes, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm saying I would say the that. Same. Um, yeah. I, say that. I mean, if if you're 
you know, if, if you're hanging out with bad people and doing bad stuff, the chances are higher probably that it it could happen to you. But you could be a perfectly law abiding citizen like, you know, one of our one of our storytellers was in law school. I mean she was a law Uh. student and she ended up spending almost seventeen years in prison. Do you want to tell us that story? Courtney? Yeah. (laughs) Um that's a horrible story. Just, I mean, it, it really yeah. is. I mean, she was sort of, she was framed, you know. Quite frankly, she worked in a jewelry store, I believe it is, and um, there were some. There's a couple that used to come into the store and used to always do some trading and buy, and they had they kept jewelry in their house and coins. Coins. I'm sorry. Thank you. Coins and um, and. Uh, Consequently, some of the people that worked with uh, this storyteller um, knew this couple, went, and for all intents and purposes, after they tried once, didn't work, and they tried again, and they stole the coins and killed the two people, and then they framed her, our storyteller, for the crime. Um, And, you know, she was just working there, and she was in law school. I mean, it was, you know, how do you do that? And yeah. and one of the and I'm just going to jump in because one of the um, the one of the people who uh, basically turned on her and said that she was the mastermind of the crime um, was was in fact one of the people who the person who killed the the, the husband and almost killed the wife and um, uh, sent a letter to the DA saying. Um, because he, his his testimony was in in exchange for a reduced sentence, and sent a letter to the DA saying, "I lied my ass off for you. Um, when are you going to reduce my sentence?" And the DA sat on that letter, and did it, the DA is supposed to turn that letter over, but of course <laughs> you're going to turn over a letter that says, "I lied my ass off for you." I probably shouldn't say that on the air, huh? <laughs> well, we actually, you can say it because we're on the net, so and so it was this. And the story is just amazing because um, the mother. You remember Sally Ride, the astronaut? Yes, I do. Well, her mother does outreach in prisons, and she found out about the story paid for investigation for on out of her own pocket mm-hmm. and ended up her investigator found that letter and that led to um the exoneration. I mean these are really dramatic stories. Were you guys surprised as you started interviewing these people or shocked? I shocked. mean, you know, uh or shocked. this is yeah, shocked. 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 Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, I've been doing it wanna, for you really want to believe these stories in your for six system. years and you I was know, shocked. You, yeah, you you really wanna you wanna have faith in it, and you you when you read these stories, you, it's just unbelievable. And then you think, how vulnerable am I? You know, what is the possibility of, you know, me being in my car and somebody pulling me over and saying, you you look just like the person we need to arrest for this crime? I mean, it's it's frightening. So, having done this, how long did it take you to actually do the interviews and and put the stories together? <laughs> It, it took a while. <laughs> you know, it was a lot of back and forth. and uh, But I think we, you know, we really started uh, focusing in um, and interviewing probably the early part of 2014. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I spent all of my Saturdays and evenings and even on vacation interviewing and transcribing or, you know, writing the notes for these, uh, these stories. So we, we finished the manuscript in September. So I guess it took us about six to seven months. Months. And then do you still have, or either one of you or both of you, do you have, still have relationships with the victims and or the families? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. They're great people. They really yeah. are great people. And, um, yeah, and one of the one of the things I just wanted to make sure that we said this. One of the things that we um, hope to get out of this book, aside from awareness and you know getting people up in arms, is to to sell a lot of copies of the book because we're sharing the proceeds with the storytellers, and so this will help them get and and their families get get some of the services that they need. So yeah, I was going to mention that, and yeah, t- you can talk be, be more, de- you know, talk to us about that in detail because the so your the monies are going to and also going to other not for profits. Is that true as well? Some of the proceeds from the book that would help the families. Yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the organizations that uh, typically have supported the exonerees, uh, we are uh, working to give some of the proceeds to some of those organizations. So if we want to get the book and we want to find, you know, people are listening thinking they want more information about what you're doing, um, where do we go? Well, the, probably the best place Two. to go is to our website, which is www.prunoproject.com. www.prunoproject.com. Uh, fascinating book. Uh, all the uh, the stories and also what you're doing, I think it's great. But um we have to say goodbye. It's been great oh. talking to both of you. Yeah, this went by Thank very quickly. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was fantastic. Thank you very much, so, Thank you. Thank you. And it's uh, Nikki Pope and Courtney Lance, and the title of their book is Pruno, Ramen, and a Side of Hope, Stories of Surviving Wrongful Conviction. Thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away, and we'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. find on get real radio well quite honestly who you really are join host james robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests you'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of it will educate titillate and enlighten your mind 
Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listen for MD Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel. That's Muscular Development Radio. Every Monday, your host, Sean Ray, will take you inside the world of bodybuilding and health and fitness. The show will feature Hall of Fame bodybuilders, trainers, judges, and the future champions of tomorrow. Plus, you'll be invited to participate in our call-in Ask the Pros feature. And our nutritional spotlight will feature products that can help you achieve your fitness goals. MD Radio is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is Lisa Green, attorney, television analyst, uh, whose uh, new book is On Your Case, a comprehensive, compassionate, and only slightly bossy legal guide for every stage of a woman's life. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, we're talking about legal advice. Uh, women have to have, I guess women don't take, uh, they, they don't know anything, or I guess what you're saying is that y- your message is that women for all ages uh, need to understand how to handle their own legal issues, and we don't seem to do that. We handle a lot of other kinds of things, nutrition, personal finances, schooling, uh, shopping, but when it comes to handling our legal issues, we don't do it. I'm not sure why we don't, but on your case tells us what we need to do and how we need to do it, right? That's uh, right. I, I, I'd like to get us started. And as you say, I think women are, you know, self-taught experts in just about every other facet of their lives. I'm sure that you exercise, eat right, look after your mom, look after your kids if you have them, and we all take um, considerable advice from experts about how to do that well. There's something about law that I think has put women off. It's scary. It's Latin. It seems expensive. 
no one wants to consult with a lawyer. And then you find you're in a situation, often it's a marriage or divorce, sometimes it's living together with someone else. It can be a child who's, you know, in legal trouble, a parent who's getting older. Law can make a positive difference in women's lives. I'm advocating for a little bit of prior knowledge, just get used to some of the concepts, and it can make an enormous difference in whether you're empowered to deal with situations in a way that benefits you and your family. Yeah, what I found interesting in your book, you said you're an attorney and you yourself have lapsed in this area. (laughs) Many times, and I'm not afraid to share it. Not afraid to share it to make the point that, you know, it's intimidating, but it doesn't have to be if you've got um, a little bit of time to read in and be aware of the places where um, you can advocate for yourself in a way that's powerful and helpful. How do we start? Let's take, you know, we go through different life stages, obviously, as women. Maybe we should start at the beginning uh, when we when we get married. Or you're actually, no, I think in your book you say we need to be aware of these legal issues and how to handle them when we're doing online dating. I guess it starts even, you know, before we are. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to um, face the Internet world with some caution, right? And whether it's online dating and remembering that dating sites aren't going to vet They really can't. The men you or women you might meet along the way, so be careful, take some precautions. Or living with someone, a much more popular alternative than ever before to marriage. But the problem is marriage is a contract and gives you rights as a spouse. Living together, no such luck. Sometimes what fancy name, cohabitation agreement, clever name, no-nup, as in no-nuptials, sitting down, just talking together, whether you put it in writing with lawyers or just figure out who's responsible, makes a big difference. Lots of people go into these relationships romantically, and they don't want to think about the legal responsibility implications. And I I just urge women to put those thoughts front and center for a little while. It avoids endless and predictable problems when a roommate changes his mind, a spouse changes his mind, a fiancé you might be proposed to. person changes their mind, what do you do? But Lisa, what about women will say, well, if I start doing that, you know, and we're talking about I'm living with somebody and maybe I don't even see it as a long, long term relationship, but it, it takes the romance out of it. And right, then it puts right. us into I this think that, adversarial you know, there are people position. who say having yeah. a prenup, for example, yeah, is tantamount to sucking the romance out of your relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, and Catherine, I would say that's like saying health insurance is going to make you sick. You know, it, it's a precautionary move. And, and with prenups, Not everyone needs one, but certainly if you have a difference in family wealth, and I think more importantly, a second marriage or a subsequent marriage when there are children involved, no one has met the new love of their life and introduced that person to their children without the children rolling their eyes and thinking, ah, this is the person who's coming after my inheritance. Think of how much smoother things will go if you sit down with the new romantic partner, iron out some issues, and then let the kids know, I'm thinking about this, and it may not be the exact situation you want, but I'm planning on your behalf. So, but, you know, in reality, I mean, that's why I think your book is so important. I don't think we really do that. How many couples who get married, I don't know if you have those statistics, but have prenups, for instance? Uh, Smaller than you might think for all the chit-chat about it. Uh, The latest statistics say only about 3% of couples. Matrimonial lawyers want that number to go up. And again, I don't think it's, you're, you know, you're starting out with someone, you're similarly situated. I don't know that you need to sit down and kind of iron out these details, although you certainly should have a talk about personal finance that's honest and open and, you know, candid. 
But uh, I think certainly in other situations, as I say, second marriages, adult children, differences in finance, a family business on one side, everyone's going to be happier watching that walk down the aisle if you've made these decisions beforehand. Because if not, I guarantee if they come up afterwards, much, much harder to untangle. Yeah, and Lisa, I think the other thing is, which is obviously the, I think the intent of your book is women don't do that. I would assume that men, uh, you know, very often take the lead in these kinds of agreements. Um, I may be wrong. But, yeah, you uh, know, I'm not sure men are appreciably better, but, but here's the difference. Women are artful planners and they tend to be careful managers of their lives in just about every other way. So I'm counting on women to heed the call faster. I also think, you know, empowerment is a word that's bandied about in lots of settings, and I applaud all of them, from leaning in to standing up straight, whatever it is you do to improve your lot in life. But why not just add the law, demystify it, and add it to your arsenal? What's a purer play in terms of power for women than what the legal system affords? It's concrete. It's available. You can educate yourself for free. You got to take advantage of these powerful options. Yeah. Well, then we, I guess also it involves changing attitudes, um, as you know, so that you will actually women will actually act on it. I guess in the yeah, other situations. I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I suspect there was a time two decades ago where if you asked women to eat kale or if you asked women to care about their retirement savings, they would have stared at you blankly and said, "Well, a kale is horrible, and b my husband takes care of that." And look how far we've come in those areas. I would argue that law is the next frontier. Yeah. I, I would agree with you. I take, uh, you know, for instance, I know in my mother's generation, women tended not to, you know, it was their husbands who took care of everything. But when the husbands died, whether prematurely or not, all of a sudden they did take care of things. Right. So it's not right. that they and weren't again, capable. And again, you're behind the eight ball at that yeah. point, right? Scary. Yeah, exactly. You're emotional. But- and here's another you, you talk about in the book as well. Um, I mean, things that maybe we don't think about as women, but, you know, one of the issues advocating for a, a special needs child, yeah. you know, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, or teens who misbehave or all of these family issues and stuff that comes up just in raising a family, we need to protect ourselves and to understand the legal ramifications as women. Yeah. That's, yeah. Look, I, I'm not saying that you need to hire your own law firm to trail you around <laughs> at family dinner times. <laughs> Even I don't think that would be pleasant. (laughs) But, you know, if you have some idea going in, you send your child to college, what are the rules of the road so that when your child, you know, has to make a decision with their sort of unsophisticated, not yet adult judgment, maybe they've got some awareness in the back of their head of what to expect from the school if they were to get into trouble. Or you mentioned special needs children and parents who have that responsibility really do need to educate themselves because the law will provide resources from their state for an education that their child deserves, but they're going to have to advocate for themselves. And there are resources out there that if they get to know them will lead to a better situation for them and their child. As an attorney, what's one of the worst case scenarios that that you've been privy to? You know, I'll tell you the one that you hear most frequently. It's Uh, no real surprise. It's divorce. And not just women who are abruptly told that their spouse wants out. Increasingly, it's women who decide they want out. And even then, I think without knowledge of what's available to them under state law, they engage in incredible wishful thinking. I'll keep the house and my ex will pay me for that. No, they won't necessarily. You're going to have to really learn what your new life might be like um, before you make decisions. And then also, 
try not to let emotions get in the way. Don't necessarily cave and reach a conclusion sooner than you need to if it means you won't have the resources you need to move on to the next chapter of your life. Okay. So can we, and I just, because we only have a few minutes left, I also mm -hmm. want to move on to a couple of the other issues that you, that you mentioned in the book, which includes em employment and uh, household health. Uh, yep. I think that's a big issue for women. Yeah, so, I, I try to make protect it. Us? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit soup to nuts. And, and certainly when it comes to household help, um, women who, who can afford the privilege might have people at home caring for their kids, caring for their homes, want to make sure they're aware that there might be tax consequences and paying Social Security taxes for your help if they are employees who are qualified is a way to ensure a better future for them too because they can qualify for Social Security benefits and then in their retirement, they're well protected by the government. So a lot more in the book about that and certainly the workplace, which for women, whether it's equal pay or sexual harassment, plenty of issues can come up. We hope they don't. But again, we want to be prepared in case they do. So if we buy your book, at least we, <laughs> we have a And good, I urge you to consider yeah, it. Yes. And you have a really good, I mean, it gives you a really good overview about what you need to know about and how to hand, you know, and of course, each person has different issues. But uh, what about social media? What, 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 you know, you talk about that. Yeah. I mean, a couple of issues on that. One is, you know, uh, be aware that your nasty Yelp post could get you in hot water legally. There's law called defamation law. If you say something false and injurious about someone else's business, they can sue you, and it doesn't matter if you nail it to a tree or post it on the Internet. So good rule of the road, think before you send. Second thing about the Internet is it can be a great resource for free legal information. For example, in divorce, many states have do-it-yourself forms for breaking up a marriage. You may not necessarily want to divorce that way. Having a lawyer can be a real asset, but you can at least read about your state's particular laws for free. Then if you go to a lawyer, you're much better educated. Uh, you know, the social media one really struck me because I, I had, yeah. Yeah, um, Catherine, it's been good to talk to you. It's been great talking to you. Do you have to go now? I'm afraid I do, but I'm okay. glad to have the chance to chat with you, um, All right. and I really appreciate your support of the book. Yeah, great. And we're to, we've been uh, talking to Lisa Green. She has to leave us now, but her book is on <laughs> your case, a comprehensive, co compassionate, and only slightly bossy legal guide for every stage of a woman's life. Thanks so much for being on the show, Lisa. Oh, my great I'm pleasure. Catherine. Thanks for having me. Well, we are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week, and we'll see you next We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.